Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the In Conversation podcast, a joint production of Oxford University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Bob Breyer, author of the book Tutankhamun and the Tomb that Changed the World. Bob, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm an Egyptologist, and I've been working in the field for about 50, 60 years. Um, All Egyptologists have specialties, and mine is mummies. Um, I I went to medical school. I have a medical medical background, so I'm I'm comfortable with bodies. So I usually work on mummies. When people find them on excavations, they'll call me in to check out the mummy, try to figure out something about it, how old it was, what did it die of, things like that. And one of my more interesting projects was about 20 years ago, in order to figure out how the ancient Egyptians mummified, I took a human cadaver and mummified it in the ancient Egyptian way. So we learned quite a bit about how the how the mummies were made. That's a fa- sounds fascinating. I'm thinking that expertise is very much on display uh, in this book. Uh, what led you to write a book about Tutankhamun, and particularly one uh, that came out this year? Well, this year is the hundredth anniversary of the discovery of the tomb. So. I was asked to do a book for for the hundredth anniversary, and then I, I sort of thought about I wanted to do something different. You know, everybody knows the story of how the tomb was discovered, things like that. And I thought that everybody doesn't know that there's a lot of research going on right now about Tutankhamun, and we're finding out all kinds of new things by using scientific methods that weren't available 20 years ago. So I thought this is the time to do it. Do a book on the new research on Tutankhamun. It's a fascinating book. And one of the things I that you do in it that I really like is you talk about the research. That is the focus of your book, but you don't ignore the history of it. And it was the connection that you make between the two that I thought was particularly fascinating, how you lay the groundwork by, for understanding how it was that we have Tutankhamun to study today before you go into the details. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about that history. Basically, who was Tutankhamun? How is it that he came to be uh, placed in a tomb? And how was that tomb uh, uh, discovered and and excavated? Sure, Mark. Um, Well, the the story is is a wonderful story. It's a sort of made-for-the-movie story. Um, Before the discovery of Tutankhamun in 1922, very little was known about him. A few Egyptologists knew his name. They knew he was sort of missing in action. Nobody had found his tomb. But past that, nobody knew anything. And there was one archaeologist, Howard Carter, who was looking for Tutankhamun. He knew about Tutankhamun. He was a kind of down-on-his-luck archaeologist, didn't have much money, uh, was running out of funds, couldn't really excavate on his own. And he met Lord Carnarvon, a wealthy Englishman who decided to fund him. They teamed up and they started looking for the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings. And they searched for years, but didn't find him. Finally, at the end of a few years of searching in the valley, Lord Carnarvon said to Carter, you know, I don't think we're going to find him. And it's expensive excavating. Let's call it quits. And Carter said to to Lord Carnarvon at High Clear Castle, right, the Lord's Castle, he said, give us one more season. I'll pay for it. Now, Carter couldn't pay for it. He didn't have the money. But it was a grand gesture. And and Carnarvon was a good man. And he said to him, I'll pay for the last season. And in the last season, in November of 1922, they struck it rich and found the tomb of Tutankhamun. 
It's interesting that we we have that date in our mind of, of 1922, and it has this huge cultural impact that you also do go into in your book. One of the things I didn't appreciate, though, until I read your book, was the fact that it wasn't as though in 1922 they opened the tomb, they found Tutankhamun, and they just pulled everything out and they were done. What you describe is is a decade-long process of, 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 of painstaking uh, exploration and uh, discovery and removal, and one that, that uh, and this is something I also didn't appreciate, not everything that was removed from the tomb eventually made it into a museum <laughs> or in, in storage. I know what you're thinking about, Mark, yes. Um, well, you're right. It took 10 years to excavate the tomb of Tutankhamun. It was so packed with treasures, with artifacts from Tutankhamun's life, that it took Howard Carter 10 years to remove everything. Um, it was a, a very careful excavation. It's an excavation that all of us in the field still admire. It was so carefully done. It's like a model for how to do an excavation. For example, before Howard Carter, nobody ever had the idea that everything should be photographed in place before it's moved from the tomb. So Carter made a complete record of what things were like on the day that Tutankhamun was buried, when all these artifacts were placed in the tomb. So we have a complete record of the tomb. And then he started removing them. Now, it was quite difficult to remove some of these objects because they were very fragile. You know, it's, it's, it's 3,000 years later, fabric, he had clothes, he had shoes, he had leather objects, there was wood, and all of this had to be conserved and, and taken care of. And Carter sort of assembled an all-star team. He knew that he would need conservators, people like chemists who knew how to conserve objects. He would need translators to translate the hieroglyphs. He needed a great photographer to do all the photography. So he was putting together, and he even needed engineers to help dismantle shrines that were inside the tomb. So it was an all-star team, and he did a fabulous job, a fabulous job of excavating. And it took him 10 years before everything was taken out of the tomb. The other thing that that comes out from that uh, description is that how we begin very quickly uh, to, you know, publicize and 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 explore what the uh, tomb finds. But as you've already alluded to, it's not as though that process was completed in that ten years. It's a process that's ongoing to this day, and that's one of the most fascinating things I found with your book: the the, the fact that you know even today, a century later we're still discovering all these fascinating aspects about Tutankhamun that we that we uh, didn't under, that we didn't realize or appreciate or, or even know, say, the first 30, 40, 50 times we, we, we studied the artifacts in his, in his body. Yeah, right, right, Mark. Absol- absolutely right. And that, that's the thrust of the, of the book that I started out to write. It became a little different as I, as I got into the research. But what I wanted to show people, and I think people believe this in general, the tomb is discovered. It takes 10 years to get the objects out of the tomb. They're all eventually moved to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. They're put in their glass cases for display by people, and that's the end of the story. But it's not. There are all kinds of research projects going on today about Tutankhamun. And, you know, before the tomb was found, very, very little was known about Tutankhamun. We all know now that he was a boy king, that he died at around the age of 19. But that wasn't known when Howard Carter discovered the tomb. As a matter of fact, it would take Howard Carter a year more than a year, before he finally got to the burial chamber where Tutankhamun was buried. And only then, when they removed the lids to the coffins, the nested coffins, one inside the other like Russian dolls, 
that they discovered that Tutankhamun was a boy king. As a matter of fact, when the tomb was first discovered, 1920s, there were songs written called Old King Tut Was a Wise Old Nut. They thought he'd be an old pharaoh. And, and on the cover of the, the sheet music, there's an old guy, an old pharaoh with a cigar in his mouth. You know, it was a kind of comic, comic song. But everybody thought that Tutankhamun would be an older man. But then they discovered, when we discovered the body, we realized he was a boy king. As you point out, his also was not the only body that was discovered in there, that there were uh, bodies of other figures. There were, there were two uh, bodies of uh, fetuses. Were fetuses. Yeah. 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 And, and, and all of which were, were very carefully uh, preserved as well. Yeah. It, it, it was a really touching thing. You know, I, I because I'm a mummy person and, and I, I've written an earlier book about Tutankhamun, um, I got to examine the fetuses. Um, as, you, as you say, Tutankhamun's mummy was not the only one in the tomb. There were two little fetuses that were in tiny coffins, which were unmarked. There were no names on them. And when I looked at them, one was a, they were both girls. One had gone to about eight months of pregnancy and the other to five. They were miscarriages, obviously, of Tutankhamun's teenage wife, Ankhosanamun. Um, and, and it was very touching when I looked at, you know, I looked at these fetuses. They were, they were in poor condition. They, they had deteriorated quite a bit. And I really didn't want to examine them carefully. I didn't want to touch them. Um, so I looked at them. I took my photographs and I left. Uh, but it was rather sad to see these two little girls uh, in, that were found in the tomb. And interestingly, you know, they're tiny. You know, fetuses are small, of course. Um, they had been mummified. The embalmers had worked their arts on these little girls to try to preserve them for eternity. So perhaps they would resurrect in the next world with their father. So it was really quite something to see these little little girls. And one final point that I, about the tomb before we talk about how we've been interpreting it is that, as you know, we, we haven't definitively identified everyone who has been, you know, uh, that, that we found in the tomb. That a century later, we're still not entirely certain. But And that gets to how much the science of this has advanced and how we've been using that science to figure out who yeah. these people are. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so much science that is that is advanced, as you say. Um, one of the things that people don't realize, even Howard Carter didn't realize this, that mummies are like little encyclopedias, if you know how to read them. There's all kinds of information contained in a mummy. And Carter really was very careful with all the artifacts and things like that. But he wasn't so careful with the mummy, or actually his expert wasn't so careful. He had an anatomist on his team, a, a medical man who was skilled in anatomy, and he was the one who was responsible for unwrapping Tutankhamun. And basically, he didn't realize that this was an ancient artifact. He didn't treat it with reverence. You know, he was an anatomist. And what anatomists do is they cut bodies apart. They try to find out the cause of death. They, they try to show students where the position of the organs are. And this all involves destroying a cadaver. So he basically treated Tutankhamun like another cadaver. He cut him apart. Um, it was a real problem because Tutankhamun was stuck in the coffin. When they buried Tutankhamun, there were many religious rituals they had to perform. And one of the things they did was they poured oils on the body, sacred oils. Now, these oils had congealed in the coffin. And now Tutankhamun, after 4,000 years, was stuck, after 3,000 years, was stuck in, in the coffin. So they tried to get him out all kinds of ways. They took the coffin out of the tomb and put it in the sun, hoping that maybe, maybe the sun would loosen it up. But it didn't. Um, 
Then they tried heated knives, slipping it under the body. It didn't work. So eventually they cut the body apart and took it out in pieces. And then when they, re they reassembled it on a sand tray, a little tray with sand on it, so it would look pretty good. But it was really kind of torn to pieces. But there's a lot of information in that body of Tutankhamun. So as I was saying, Mark, we're learning a lot more. For example, ju just for example, um, when I started doing the research, I was, of course, reading everything that was, was said about the mummy first. I was interested in the mummy. And one of the things that had been said many times, many times, is that Tutankhamun had a clubbed foot and actually that he walked on the side of his ankle, that it was, it was so bad. And there were x-rays that had been taken of Tutankhamun in the 1960s of the mummy, and I didn't see any evidence of a clubbed foot, and neither did anybody else. And the anatomist, Douglas Derry, who took Tutankhamun apart, basically, he didn't notice anything like a club foot on one of the ankles. And he should have noticed. And the, and the x-ray you know, technician who did it should have noticed. But nobody said it. Then finally, in the 1990s, or a little later, actually, they did CAT scans, which are much more advanced, much more careful. And the CAT scans were, were presented. And nobody said anything about a club foot. And all of a sudden, when a book was published about the CAT scans, there was a CAT scan of the ankle, and it said Tutankhamun had a club foot and walked on the side of his ankle. And I looked at the CAT scan, and I didn't see it. It just didn't look like a club foot to me. And then a physician wrote in and said that he didn't see it either, an orthopedic surgeon. He didn't see a club foot. So it was kind of curious, and I started you know, looking more carefully and there was no club foot. It just was something that had been said by someone. Um, for example, if Tutankhamun had a club foot, his shoes would have been worn asymmetrically. The one that dragged, if he walked on his ankle, would have been worn terribly. Now, Tutankhamun was buried with dozens of pairs of shoes, dozens, and they're all symmetrical. There's no evidence of a club foot. Further, I mean, this is kind of my research where I sort of try to put things together. If he had a club foot, it would have affected the bones of the lower legs also. It would have you know, affected how they grew. Nope, no evidence of that either. From the x-ray, from the CAT scans, his lower legs look perfectly normal. Also, you know, if you walk with a limp even, it's going to affect your hip. And that's why people have to have hip replacements. You know, they wear out the, the femur, the top of the, the, top of the large, long bone. Um, and there's no evidence of that in Tutankhamun either. So even though people were painting this picture of Tutankhamun as a uh, a feeble pharaoh who limped through life. Um, no, it's not true. So research is finding out new things about Tutankhamun all the time. And as a matter of fact, this led me to suggest another view of Tutankhamun, that rather than the, the fragile pharaoh, he could have been a warrior. Because Tutankhamun, now he's, he dies at about the age of 19. So certainly, he's not going to be a warrior earlier in his reign. He took over the, the rule of Egypt when he was 10 years old. People are ruling for him, of course, but he becomes king when he's only 10 years old. But by the time he's a, you know, an older teenager, he certainly could have gone into battle. I mean, we have soldiers going into battle at 18 or so. Um, so I think he may have been a warrior because he was buried with a suit of armor. And it was worn. It had been worn. It was a leather suit of armor and it had been worn. So that's one little bit of evidence that he was a warrior, but also he showed himself in battle. There are, there are scenes that he had carved on temple walls showing him in battle. So I think Tutankhamun could have been a warrior. So we're changing the picture of the boy king all the time by new research.
And one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book was how you show that's done, how it is that you, how it is that you can cross correlate the physical examination of Tutankhamun's body with the artifacts that are there. The point that you make about the club foot example, uh, you talk about when you're, the physical examination, but then in a later chapter, you reference all the, all the shoes and, and other uh, artifacts that are in there, which point to how it, we, how, you know, that which provide that corroborating evidence, which is not something you can always do. I mean, we can find so many bodies nowadays. We, we do excavations of skeletons. We, we discover preserved cavemen that, that have been frozen in, in the Alps. And, and yet with, with, Tutankhamun, with Tutankhamun, we can sit there and take all these artifacts and say, well, if he does have this, well, then what, where's the evidence in this physical artifact, which has survived 4,000 years? Yeah, you're right, Mark. It's a little, you know, it's a little bit like CSI ancient Egypt. I mean, where we, we, we're trying to do, you know, sort of forensics on a 3,500 year old corpse. But we also have, as you point out, additional information. We have his clothes. We have, and, and I'll give you an example, another example of how people thought they had evidence that he was a fragile um, pharaoh who walked on, on the side of his leg. Tutankhamun was buried with dozens of walking sticks. They were rather elaborately carved canes. They were rather pretty. Um, but it didn't mean anything because that was a sign of authority. In, in ancient Egypt, people who were high officials always carried a walking stick, a staff of authority. So that just meant these were staves of authority, not that he needed them. And we see everybody shown with staves of authority. Pharaohs all the time are shown with that. So it didn't mean that he you know, was fragile, couldn't walk without the help of it. It's just showing he, he was, had a position of authority. So we can put all of these things together and we start you know, getting a new picture of Tutankhamun. I was wondering if you could go back just a little bit and explain the different ways that his body, that Tutankhamun's body has been examined over the years, because you've already mentioned how it's been x-rayed and CAT scanned. I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, the various times at which we, that this, this process has been done. I mean, it's not as though that they, every so often on a whim, just, you know, roll them out on a gurney to the nearest, to the latest technology and scan them. As you explained, it's something that only happens periodically. And what is it that, that typically prompts the, these re-examinations of, of, the, uh, of the remains? Yeah, very good question, Mark. Um, now, as I said before, Carter didn't care particularly about mummies. You know, he, he was very concerned about things like the gold mask, the coffins, the shrines that, that enclosed the coffins. Very, very concerned about that, um, but not so much about the mummy. He left that to Derry. So in the 1920s, the mummy is examined physically by an anatomist who does a fairly good job of describing it. He may do damage to the mummy, but he's describing it fairly accurately. He was 19 years old, and we can tell that by various features of the bones. For example, you know, you know, the reason teenagers are more flexible than older people is that the ends of their bones haven't ossified yet. At the very ends of the long bones, the, the, the ends are called the epiphyses, at the very end, there's still cartilage, which makes it kind of soft. So as you get older, those, that cartilage becomes bone, and then you become less flexible. So Tutankhamun still had cartilage at the end of his bones, so we know, you know, that's how we know he was 19 or so, that kind of thing. Um, so Derry examines him in 1920-24 and says, you know, he's a teenager, da-da-da-da-da. Great. Terrific. But Carter didn't take it further. They could have x-rayed him then. There were portable x-ray machines in the 1920s, and they could have brought one into the Valley of the Kings and x-rayed him, and we might have learned more. But nobody did it. 
Then, in the 1960s, a radiologist named Harrison realized this is a chance to learn more about Tutankhamun. He should have been x-rayed. So in the 60s, Harrison x-rayed Tutankhamun, and we learned still more. Now, it's interesting that because of something Harrison said, I wound up writing a book about Tutankhamun in the 1990s, I guess it is, um, and it was called The Murder of Tutankhamun. And I remember watching a documentary where this radiologist, Harrison, is showing x-rays of Tutankhamun's skull. And it was fascinating for several reasons. First, the x-ray of the skull didn't look like a normal skull. And what I mean by that is we have a, the, the, the top of your skull and the back of your skull, your occipital and parietal areas, have a certain thickness. The bone is a certain thickness in normal people. When you looked at the x-ray, the, the bones were about maybe, oh, looked like five or six times as thick as anyone else. But that wasn't the bone. What that shows us is how Tutankhamun was mummified 3,500 years ago. What the embalmers did, after they removed the brain through the nose, which is not an easy process, they took it out because they didn't want it to decay. They wanted the body to be inviolate, not decaying forever. So they took the brain out. But then what they did is they poured resin, tar, basically, through Tutankhamun's nasal passages into the cranium. And it hardened. So that's why we have these thick layers that looks like bone, like very super thick bone, but it's really resin, which has hardened at the top and the bottom of Tutankhamun's skull. And that shows us something about how the mummifiers worked, that they moved the body twice. They put resin in, then they moved them another way and moved, put resin in. So that was fascinating to see that. And, and that 1960s x-ray showed us something about embalming technique. But the thing that got me was when Harrison was pointing to the back of Tutankhamun's skull, and he said, you see this dark area here? This could be a blow to the back of the head. And this, in turn, could have caused a hematoma, a subdural hematoma, a, a blood clot, which in turn could have caused pressure on the brain, which in turn could have caused death. So Harrison was suggesting that his x-ray could even help indicate the cause of death of Tutankhamun. So I'm looking at that and saying, wow, that is really neat. And then I knew something about the circumstances surrounding Tutankhamun's death. It's very suspicious. Now, Tutankhamun's 19-year-old, and he dies. Okay, end of story there. But as soon as he dies, his widow, Ankhesenamun, who's about 18, 19 years old, same age, she writes the strangest letter in Egyptian history to the Hittite king. Now, the Hittites are the traditional enemies of Egypt. And the queen of Egypt writes to the Hittite king and says, my husband has died. I have no sons. They say you have many sons. Send me one of your princes and I will marry him and make him king of Egypt. I am afraid. Never will I marry a servant of mine. Now that's a shocking letter. I mean, why is the queen of Egypt afraid? And what does she mean? Never will I marry a servant of mine. And why does she want the Hittite king to send a prince for her to marry? Now, we know what happens next. The Hittite king thinks this letter is so strange. It's unbelievable to him. And he sends an ambassador to Egypt to find out if the situation is true. Has this queen's husband really died? Will she really marry a prince if I send him? 
the ambassador goes, returns from Egypt and says to the king, yes, it's true. Her husband has died. She's willing to marry a Hittite prince. And the king sends the prince. His name is Zanzana. We even know his name. And what happens to him? He is murdered on the borders of Egypt before he arrives at Ankhesenamun's doorstep at her palace. So the prince is killed. Now, what happens to Ankhesenamun? She disappears from history. We do not know anything about her after that letter, pretty much. Um, we do know that the next king is I-A-Y-E, and he became king by marrying Ankhesenamun. It was matrilineal. You, met, you became king of Egypt by marrying the woman with the royal blood. So I somehow marries Ankhesenamun. And remember, I is a commoner. So maybe he's the servant that she says, never will I marry a servant of mine. So it's a really suspicious situation. And Ankhesenamun disappears. We don't have a tomb for her. We don't have any records of her. She just disappears from history. So when I saw Harrison pointing to the back of Tutankhamun's x-ray and saying, this could have been a blow to the back of the head, which could have caused death, I'm thinking, murder, murder, murder. Tutankhamun was murdered. Um, <laughs> I wrote a book called The Murder of Tutankhamun, in which I flesh out all of these things and, and try to put it all together to, to really do a CSI, Thebes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's the 1960s x-ray that I'm working from. But to be fair, new techniques come up. And when the CAT scan came, Zach, when the CAT scans came, I looked at him very carefully for the back of the head, and it was clear there was no blow to the back of the head. The CAT scans gave a much better resolution, much better picture of what had happened. So my blow to the back of the head was wrong. But this is how new techniques change the way we view things. I still think that murder was a possibility because of this Ankhesenamun letter. It's it's the circumstantial evidence that's remarkable. This queen of Egypt being afraid and never will I marry a king of mine. And I even, you know, the, the next pharaoh named I, A-Y-E, was an old man when he becomes king. He's in his 70s. He marries this teenage Ankhesenamun to become king. And he has his own tomb. And on the tomb walls, I went there to see the tomb. I went to the tomb to see if there's any signs of Ankhesenamun. After all, she's queen of Egypt. She should be there with the king now, the new king, but she's not there at all. She's just disappeared. So I think there's still maybe a murder involved, but it certainly wasn't because of a blow to the back of the head. So all of these new techniques, when they come along, um, they reveal new things. And the reason they come along is when the techniques are, are well enough advanced and you get somebody who's skilled in them, who knows about Tutankhamun and says, you know, I'd love to apply this to Tutankhamun. So we get the x-ray, the radiologist saying, I'd like to x-ray him. We get the CAT scan people saying, oh, I'd like to CAT scan him now that we've got this. And every time we move the story forward a bit and learn a bit more. So that's why he's x-rayed in the 60s, CAT scanned in 2000. Um, it's just the technology comes along and we get a technologist who really is aware of Tutankhamun and says, let's apply it to Tut. You also, though, in your book, d demonstrate the, the challenges in terms of the limits of what we have. And it's not a sense of, you know, wishing for things that were never put in the tomb. It's the things that were in the tomb that we know were there but aren't anymore. And you have an entire chapter which, which illustrates this with the uh, missing pectoral. And I was wondering, perhaps if you could explain uh, for those who may not know what a pectoral is and, and, and the fascinating history of what, you know, ha may have happened to it. Yeah, sure. Uh, a pectoral is really a necklace. It, it's a kind of... Um, broad collar that, that pharaohs wore, queens wore, um, even nobility wore them. So it fits around your chest, you know, it hangs on your neck and it, and it fits right on your chest. Now with Tutankhamun, 
there were quite a few problems, political problems, with the excavation of the tomb. When Howard Carter was excavating, England was in charge of Egypt. It was a colonial situation. So the Egyptians weren't doing the excavation. It was the Brits. And Carter, to a great extent, and Carnarvon, felt they sort of owned the tomb. They didn't, but they were acting as if it was theirs. And Carter was actually taking objects out of the tomb and giving them to friends. And it caused great problems. And, and Carter was eventually locked out of the tomb. The Egyptian government came, it wasn't even the Egyptian government, this time it was the French who were running the antiquity service. They came and they, they kicked Carter out of the tomb and locked him out for a year. And Carter went off on a lecture tour to America, gave lectures in America for a year. And eventually the Egyptian government realized Carter was the only guy who could excavate this tomb properly. So he was allowed back in the tomb to continue the excavation, which finished around 1932. Now, Carter, as I said, had been giving things to friends. I discovered, we all knew this. Egyptologists knew that there were problems with Carter taking things, things not showing up, stuff like that. And one of the missing things was a pectoral. Tutankhamun had been buried with several pectorals on his body. And they were sort of stuck in the resin and in, in the oils that they poured on them. It was difficult to get them off and things like that. But these things turned up in museums around the world years after Carter was dead when his estate was sold, and these things were turning up. So it looked as if Carter had been taking objects. Now, I found a letter, a friend of mine had it, which was written by the translator for the excavation team. His name was Sir Alan Gardner. He was the great translator of Egyptian texts. And Sir Alan was given an amulet by Howard Carter. And Carter never told him that it came from Tutankhamun's tomb. And when Sir Alan showed it to the director of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, oh, look what Carter gave me. The director said, wait a second, that comes from Tutankhamun's tomb. We have five or six of them right here from the same mold. It's exactly the same thing. That came from Tut's tomb. And Gardner was really furious, absolutely furious with Carter for putting him in that situation. We have the letter from Gardner to Carter saying, you really put me in a difficult position. And then Gardner wrote a letter to Rex Engelbach, the director of the, of the museum, and said, you know, Engelbach, I want to clear things. Just so you know, you know, you can have the amulet, of course. But Carter also gave me the seals to the tomb of Tutankhamun. I gave them to one of my kids. I just wanted to let you know we have them. So Carter was giving things out left, right, and center from the tomb. And he and Carnarvon were treating it pretty much like it was their tomb. The... Uh Chapter the, the chapters that you write about translating to, uh, Tutankhamun is are, are very interesting. But I thought it was even more fascinating when you delve into the impact of the discovery. And, and you in, in the final part of your book, you, you you talk a great deal about the the legacy of the discovery and how, in a way, uh, Tutankhamun is still shaping history even today. Not just the you know, informing our knowledge of it, but how the, the knowledge of of the tomb it, it has shaped events since then. Yeah, that's something I didn't intend when I started writing the book. When I started writing the book, I thought I'd just present current research and let everybody know, look, we're learning all kinds of things about. I mean, for example, I have one chapter that I think is fun. Um, it, the title, at least, is fun. It's called It Came From Outer Space. <laughs> I, th I think the ancient alien people are going to be disappointed. You know, there's no alien. I, I, was, I was half expecting, you know, something out of like the Stargate movie or something. Right, You're right, talking right. about the spaceships landing on the pyramids. <laughs> right, right, right. With, with William Shatner narrating. Um, but, but, but no, in, in Tutankhamun's tomb, 
it was discovered that now the ancient Egyptians didn't have iron. They didn't have iron. Um, but in Tutankhamun's tomb, there were five objects made of iron. And how did that happen? And the answer is it's meteoritic iron. The Egyptians had found meteorites and hammered objects out of the meteorites. So I think that's kind of interesting. And that's sort of the kind of research thing that I include in the book, you know, lots of fun things like that. Um, and that's where I thought the book would end with the research. But it didn't, because as I started doing more and more research, I realized that the legacy of Tutankhamun is much wider than just Egyptology. For example, when Carter was locked out of the tomb, right, there were lots of reasons for that, not just that they thought he was taking things. No, no. It was this colonial attitude. Carter and Carnarvon, when they discover the tomb, are besieged by journalists. Everybody wants the story. They're all flocking to the Valley of the Kings, asking Carter questions, asking Carnarvon questions, and they just couldn't work under these circumstances. They felt it was just too much of a circus. So Carnarvon made a very, very, very bad decision. He decided to get all these journalists off his back by selling the rights to the story of the excavation of the tomb to only one newspaper, the London Times. Now, Carter and Carnarvon agreed with the London Times they would speak to no one else about the tomb except the journalists from the London Times. Now think about this. They're excavating in Egypt. This is an Egyptian tomb of an Egyptian pharaoh, and they're giving the, the, the sole exclusive rights to a British journal, right, to a British newspaper. The Egyptians were furious. I mean, think about it. If you're an Egyptian journalist, you can't interview Carter or Carnarvon. You have to get your news by reading a British newspaper. That's crazy. And everybody was frantic and furious. And that's one of the reasons why Carter was locked out of the tomb also. So what happens is Tutankhamun becomes the poster boy for nationalism. In Egypt, the nationalists are saying, wait a second. This is our country. This is our heritage. This is our tomb. British should leave. So Tutankhamun becomes this poster boy for independence for Egypt. And eventually it, it would take a long time. But eventually, Egypt would gain its independence. And I think Tutankhamun played a very important role in that. Now, also, another role, legacy we have from Tutankhamun is the antiquities laws. When the tomb was discovered, Carter and Carnarvon had a contract with the Egyptian government. And the contract was that if an intact tomb in the Valley of the Kings was found, everything stays in Egypt. Now, that's because it would be such an important finding, you want to keep everything together. But all of the tombs before Tutankhamun, you had what was called a division of the finds. When a museum, say, say, say the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which excavated in Egypt at, at that time, when the Metropolitan Museum of Art excavates for a season in Egypt, at the end of the season, whatever objects they find are divided between the Egyptian Antiquity Service and the Petrotal Museum of Art. They literally would divide it in two piles and, and the inspector would come and choose which one he wanted for Egypt. So there was always a division of the finds of objects. And every museum always thought, when I excavate, well, we're going to bring objects home for our museum. Same with universities. When they excavate, they would bring objects home for their university's museum. But after Tutankhamun and after this big hubbub with whose tomb is this? 
it would eventually lead to changing the antiquities laws as they are today. Nothing leaves Egypt. There, if you are excavating in Egypt, at the end of the season, you know that everything is staying in Egypt. And you're excavating now for knowledge, not objects and treasure. So Tutankhamun played an important role in the, the, the route to independence, the changing of antiquity laws. But there's another one that we still have today that I, that I, I have a chapter in, in, the, in the book about it, which I think is kind of interesting, is that Tutankhamun also is sort of the inventor of the first blockbuster museum exhibit. You know, before Tutankhamun, nobody realized that museum exhibits could be big you know, publicity, big, big finances. In the old days, museum gift shops were places where you bought a postcard. But in the 1970s, when it was the 50th anniversary of Tutankhamun's tomb, the British Museum, the, the British Museum asked to borrow objects from the tomb. Nothing had ever left Egypt you know, in, in a big way. They asked to borrow 50 objects from the tomb to exhibit at the British Museum. And it was a tremendous success. Tremendous. And then the Metropolitan Museum of Art's director, Thomas Hoving, who was really like a P.T. Barnum of museums, he was a real showman, a real entrepreneur. He realized this could be big business. So he asked Egypt if they could have, the Met could have an exhibition, and he got permission to have the 50 objects plus some more. And he planned an exhibition at the Met that was incredible. They had a gift shop that was huge. And for the first time, you know, no more postcards. You had and little little replicas selling for $1,500 in the gift shop. And you had replicas, Tutankhamun's gold, you know, made in jewelry for the ladies to wear. And people lined up, you know, for hours and hours to get tickets to the show at the Metropolitan Museum's exhibit. And, you know, if, I don't know if you remember it, Mark, but um, Saturday Night Live even did a thing about King Tut, where <laughs> Steve, Steve Martin did his famous song, you know, King Tut. Born in Arizona, built a condo made of stone, or King Tut. But it's a lot about the finances of the museums. Said, if I'd have known they'd have lined up to see him, I'd have bought me a museum, right? And that's what Stephen Martin is singing. So it, it was a tremendous legacy that we have today that museums now realize that you can make a fortune if you have a blockbuster exhibit that people want to see and then make your money back in the gift shop. And that's how they do it. And that's all due to King Tut. You know, at the end of I don't know if you remember the last line of the, of the, of the King Tut song that, that Steve Martin sang on Saturday Night Live, but it's, he gave his life to tourism. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's another one of those legacies of King Tut that we have. The blockbuster exhibit is all due to Tutankhamun. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, we take, appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, I'm working on like a thousand things. My God. Um, right, actually, right. You know, I've, I've just finished the book, you know, for Oxford University Press on Tutankhamun and the tomb that changed the world. So I very much want to do something different. Um, and what I'm doing is translating. I'm taking a few books that were um, never translated, but are classics, are really important. And I'm translating them so that people can read them. They're, they're books that I think are good stories. So, for example, there's one book that was written in 1834, 1837, actually, about the obelisk that was moved to Paris from Egypt. And it's written by a man, Apollonelle Labat, and it's a fabulous adventure story. 
and I wanted to tell people about it. So I translated Lebas book. So that's one thing I'm working on translating that from the French. That's done. That's done now. And there's another book um, by Ferlini, a guy named Ferlini, who went into Nubia, which is the Sudan all the way in the south. And um, he found treasures inside a pyramid that were incredible. And it's a great adventure story where he barely gets out with his life and he brings back the treasures. And they're so fabulous that everybody thinks they're fake. And it takes him years to sell them and get his money back. So that's another great story. I mean, I like to to deal with things that are great stories. I mean, it, it's I think in the end, if, it, if a book is a good book, it's going to be a storyteller's book. And that's why I did the Tutankhamun book, because I think it's just a wonderful story about the discovery of the tomb, the research search on the tomb, and the legacy that Tutankhamun has given us today. It definitely is. Well, uh, Bob, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Mark.